All right, good morning. Hey, uh, the, all the songs we just sang were very, um, they were very Christocentric. They were very much about Jesus. And it reminds me, I said this in the last service, um, in, in some Christian traditions, specifically more so the Presbyterian, there is an inscription on the pulpit where only the preacher can see it. And it says, Sir, we would see Jesus. So I want us to see Jesus this morning from 1 Peter. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, we're going to look at 14 through 16 this morning, uh, but I want to pick up reading in verse 10 for a bit of context. Um, and as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. So when you, when you look at all that's going on in the world, um, when you look at our culture, our society, our politics, our news, our news feeds, with, with everything going on, does it, does it appear to you that things are going the right way? Does, does it seem that things are trending in the right direction as we continue the series that Robert started last week? So nearly every day there seems to be almost a competition between what news can be most depressing or emotionally charged or most outrageous or even most stupid. There is, um, even when there's good news, it's almost always followed by a huge dose of uh, despair just to kind of tamper down the hopefulness. And it makes us want to ask, seemingly, with things seemingly looking like they're going from bad to worse, everything looking like it's trending in the wrong direction, is there even, is there even a point anymore? When everything is being redefined or canceled or reset or reorganized, does it even matter what we do? Does it matter how we live? Does God still have a standard? And if He does, how do we reach it? Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, pick up at verse 10. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient these are our verses today. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is God's word. So if you remember, um, the book of 1 Peter is written to Christians who are suffering. These are the people who are identified in the first one or two verses of First Peter, um, all of those people in all of those locations around the Roman Empire, these are Christians who have been displaced and dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, and they faced enormous difficulty, right? So they are, um, they are removed from their homes, their families, some of them have had family members killed for following Christ, they've lost their, their, their livelihood, they're dispersed, they're cast out of Roman society, they're not sitting around waiting for a new administration of the Roman Empire to come in and restore their rights and their freedoms to them. They face very little hope of their circumstances improving. And they, um, those to whom Peter is writing in this context, then they've been, because they were a nuisance to Rome, because they followed Christ, they are just kind of 
forgotten about, and thrown away. But these people, these Christians, had something better than Rome could ever offer. They had, just as we have, if we are in Christ, if we are believers, if we are Christians, just as these Christians, they have something better than Rome could offer. They had, as all believers did, they had been called to salvation, to the glorious grace that can only be found in Christ. Now that is Peter's baseline. Everything he writes in 1 Peter is to Christians. So if you're a non-believer or if you're, if you're joining us online or if you're here um, and, and you don't know Christ, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're watching. But this message is actually to believers and it's not really, it's going to do one of two things or both if you're not a believer. It's either going to be really confusing and not make a lot of sense or it's going to give you a lot of rules to live up to that you're not able to because you're outside of Christ. So we need to understand that Peter is writing to Christians about how they live now that everything is going wrong in their lives. So Peter's addressing, he says, uh, he, he addresses the questions, oh, we, are, we are saved, now what do we do? We are saved and we're being persecuted, now what do we do? We're saved and we're suffering, now what do we do? Peter is, he is less concerned with addressing the specific sufferings with the circumstantial predicaments that his, that his readers are, are actually going through. Now, he doesn't dismiss their suffering in, in, a, in a dismissive or non-caring or obtuse way. He actually addresses it in verses 6 and 7 briefly, but Peter knows of suffering himself. He's not dismissing their pain. He was, matter of fact, shortly after he wrote his two letters, Peter was, according to Christian tradition, crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. So he, he knows suffering, but he's much more concerned with salvation and its implications, which is why I started reading in verse 10, because verses 10 through 13 set the table for us to understand why verses 14, 15, and 16 are so significant and why they're significant, especially in times of distress. Why would God care how we live when the wheels are coming off society? So briefly in verses 10 through 12, just as an aside, I, I had to work really hard not to actually preach these verses because I, um, I said this in the first servant, Robert, if you're listening, I really might want to preach these because they're really, really good. I had to like restrain myself from preaching on these. Um, but just as a background, verse 10 through 12, it talks about how the Old Testament prophets in the power and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit foretold how Jesus must come and suffer, how he must be raised from the dead and glorified in the resurrection. The Old Testament, uh, the, specifically the prophets that uh, we sometimes have a hard time understanding, what their overall message, what their underlying message is about is Jesus and prophesying of his coming and his death, his burial, his resurrection, and our hope. The prophets foretold of the grace that would be given to those who believe in Jesus when they heard the good news and responded by faith. That is, what this verse says is that uh, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the prophets to write about Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that preached the gospel to Peter's writers and gave them faith, and that because of that, their message was actually for Peter's writers, uh, Peter's readers, and us. It's for our benefit. This is a message. Verse 12 is amazing because it tells us that the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus served those who now believe in the message that is preached by the Holy Spirit. That's a message that even angels long to look into. Man, I really wanted to unpack that verse this morning. I can't do it. I wish I could. That message is for us. It's for you. It's for me. 
It's the message of the gospel. It's the message that calls us to believe and to be saved and to look forward to and place our hope and our trust into the living hope of Jesus Christ. This message of salvation is that, that, that Peter is so concerned with is the foundation of his writing. It is the reason that the therefore is therefore in verse 13. Because of this salvation, therefore, because of this salvation, we have heard. Because of this salvation, we believe. Because of this salvation, we are called to action. Look at the verbs in verse 13. They're active. They're present. They are alive. If this was a grammar class, we would call them present active participles. If you've ever taken a grammar, I'm sorry, that might have given you a flashback. It does for me in my old Greek classes. We actively remain sober-minded. We actively set our minds on the grace that will be, re- will be revealed to us when Jesus returns. So now we're ready for verses 14 through 16. Now, don't miss this. If, if you hear nothing else, here, here, we have to make sure we get this right. These verses, verses 14 through 16, are not a call to simple behavior modification. This is not a call to, um, to be more moralistic this is not a call to, um, to do certain things in order that God would accept us. Peter is writing to Christians. He is writing to people who have already been saved, and he's telling them, now that that is true of you, here is how you are to live in, in response to what is going on around you. This is not um, Alistair Begg, one of my fa- not, Al- not Alex Trebek, Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers. Uh, he's, from, he's from Scotland. He pastors in Ohio. Um, he says this of these verses. He says, this is not a call to be more religious so we can gain acceptance with God. Rather, this is a call issued to those who have been saved to live a certain type of lifestyle based on the fact that we have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have to get that. Otherwise, this will become a moralistic sermon that will depress us and lead us further away from Christ. This is about how we live now that we are saved, if you are saved. We've been born again. We have this salvation, but everything around us is falling apart. So why does it matter why we live? What do we do when the wheels fall off? Well, look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So first thing we do, we remember that our identity is not as, we remember our identity as God's children and no longer as ignorant slaves. So if you remember the movie, uh, it came out in 99. Um, so my friends joke with me that I think 1998 was probably the best year to be alive. I was 17. It was awesome. I had no responsibilities and just it was a lot of fun. The year after that, um, 1999, The Matrix came out. You remember The Matrix? Great movie. It's 21 years ago, which is depressing to me because that means I've been out of high school that long. But there's a, there's a scene in The Matrix right after Neo has been unplugged. And they're sitting around and they're eating this kind of bowl of slop that's got all the like the necessary like ingredient like, health ingredients that you need for a human body. And one of the crew members turns to Neo and says, "You know, to deny our own impulses is to deny the very thing that makes us human." And I'm not sure there's a more accurate summation of what our culture is like today. Whatever's pleasing to us is what we chase. Whatever makes us feel good, whatever brings gratification, that's what we long for. And it's easy to lose ourselves in that and think that doing whatever we want brings us real freedom. If I could just do anything I wanted, I would be free. If we're not careful, even as Christians, we can fall into that kind of thinking. 
Not happy in your marriage? Just have an affair. Or get divorced and start over, try again. Not advancing at work? Cheat, cut some corners, get noticed, get the promotion at all costs. You don't have enough influence over people, or you might have some convictions and people think you're weird or strange for having those convictions? Just forsake your principles and your integrity and you can be accepted. This is how the world works. It's easy to give up and give in when things are hard. What does it even matter if I show restraint or conviction about anything? Because if I do, I'll be ridiculed or canceled or forgotten or laughed at or ostracized. Instead, I'll just do whatever I want or just go with the crowd and do whatever they do. That'll make me happy because, again, to deny my own impulses is to deny the very fact, the very thing that makes me human. This is not what the Christian life is about. This is not what Christians are called to. Remember, Peter is writing to believers who are in hard situations. Peter calls them, and Peter calls us, regardless of circumstances. This is fascinating. Peter calls us, regardless of circumstance, to obedience because we're God's children. Now, obeying God doesn't make us His children. Rather, our obedience distinguishes us from those who have a different father. So Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, this is, this is, a, this is a, a weighty saying by Jesus. Jesus says to the Pharisees, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Whoever hears the words of God is of God. The reason you do not hear is that you're not of God. Whoa, that's a hard, that's a hard word from Jesus. What Jesus said there is that God's children hear and obey God. And if you're obeying something other than God, you're not of God. And Peter backs this up here in these verses because he says, as God's children, we are to obey Him. We obey God and His Word because we are His, because He's our Father and because He has saved us. Obedience to God and holy conduct is a distinguishing mark of those who have their hopes set on Jesus and have God as their Father. Now, um, every day when I drop my kids off at school. I have a, a three-and-a-half-year-old, and I mean, we, we call it school, but we'll be honest, it, it's, it's daycare. I drop her off, and then at the end of the day, I go get her, and I walk into the classroom, and there's all these kids there, and I call her name, and she responds to me. Her response to me by my voice doesn't make her my daughter. She hears my voice and recognizes my voice and responds to my voice and obeys me because she is mine. That's exactly how it is with God. We don't make ourselves children of God because we obey Him. We obey Him because He is our Father and we recognize His voice. Here's what J.I. Packer says about this. So J.I. Packer was, um, he was kind of the, two generations ago, he was kind of the John Piper of his day. Um, and the, the term Christian classic is overrated, but the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer is magnificently significant, so read that book. But here's the, um, here's the quote that Packer says from that book. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught 
Everything that is distinctly Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. If God is your father, that is, if you've become a Christian, by trusting Jesus, it changes everything. It changes the way we behave. It changes the way we act. Peter says not to conform to the former passions of our former ignorance. This, this really echoes Paul quite loudly in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, Paul talks about the, the natural state of mankind before Christ. Paul says that we are by nature children of disobedience. We are vessels of wrath. That is our natural state, our natural bent. What we gravitate to is rebellion against God. That's who we were before Christ. And Peter's saying not to go back to that, no matter how bad our situation gets. Following our own passion in ignorance of the Lord, in ignorance of Jesus and all that he has done for us, it isn't freedom. Doing whatever we want all the time with no restraint and no obedience to the Lord isn't liberating. It's slavery. We become slaves to our passions, unable to deny any impulse that we might have. We become hedonists, only seeking our own goodness, our own glory, our own advancement, our own satisfaction that that won't last, only living for what satisfies us right now. That's how we lived before we were Christians. It's how those live who have no hope. When there's difficulty, when there's hardship, when there's suffering, when there's struggle, when everything is bad, those who don't know Christ, those who don't have their hope grounded in Him, those who don't have God as their Father, they retreat to their own passions because at least I can be happy for a second or two because there's no relief from the misery, so I'm just going to do what feels good so I can forget how bad it really is with no objective reality and no thought of what comes next. That's how those live who have no hope. So Peter calls those, he calls believers to obedience because our natural gratification, excuse me, our natural uh, gravitation to disobedience, because we still live in the flesh, because we still live in this fallen world, because there's still sin, even as believers, we can slip back into that. And Peter said, he gets up in our face and he says, don't do that. Don't live that way anymore. You are saved. You are redeemed. Jesus has shed his blood for you. You are a child of God. Don't act the way you used to but even if we do even if we lapse back into disobedient when things are bad that kind of lifestyle doesn't characterize the child of god god cares how we behave because his obedience because our obedience is a reflection for what he has done for us do you know why christians can obey god in the middle of calamity when, when, when everything is going wrong and nothing seems to make sense it's, it's because our obedience to him, it points us to a reality that there is more than just the here and now. So it's a prevalent thought that it, it today, and it's really an old thought, that nothing exists beyond right now. There's nothing beyond this. You're born, you live, you make some money, you try to be happy, you try to live your best life now, try to be the best version of yourself, and that's it. You die and it's over. That is not what the Bible teaches. We are more than just matter and bodies that exist for a second or two and then disappear and are no more. We obey Christ because what he offers us in eternity is better than anything else this world can offer. And what's waiting for us in Christ, what we set our hope in, that that future glory coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that future hope, that makes our present suffering bearable. 
I'm reminded of a story that I heard a preacher say um, about a homeless man who lived in a cardboard box. That was his only possession. He had a, he had a box he lived in. And then one day, this well-dressed attorney, sorry, Nick, this, 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 uh, this well-dressed attorney comes up to him and says, man, I've been looking for you everywhere because you are the sole heir of this multimillionaire who has left you, he has died and he has left you his entire fortune. And it's going to be about a week and a half, two weeks or so before you can lay claim to that because we have to get all the paperwork put together. But now this man's reality has changed. The, um, the circumstantial moment that he's in hasn't changed. He still has to live in the cardboard box for another two weeks. But it becomes a little bit more bearable. There's a little bit more hope because he knows at the end of his suffering that he will have more than he could have ever imagined. It's the exact same way with God. We can stand firm, we can obey in the face of no matter what this world throws at us because we know we have a living hope in the person of Christ and nothing compares to the future glories that will be revealed at the coming of Christ. That's why we can obey and keep our hope in the middle of great trouble because we have our faith anchored in Christ. So what do we do when everything falls apart? Well, first we remember our identity as God's children and no longer ignorant slaves. We cling to Jesus. We obey Him as His obedient children. And we forsake the ignorance of our former life and we remember that our chief end is to know God and enjoy Him forever. We look forward to our hope. We look forward to Him as our hope and the glory that will be revealed to to us when Christ comes. Next, we will also remember that our personal holiness reflects the nature of God and brings Him glory. Look at verses 15 through 16. But as He who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So in addition to obedience, Christians are also called to holiness. What does that mean? What is holiness? Well, as an attribute of God... holiness is the very attribute that makes God, God. He is holy in and of himself. There is not an exterior or, or an external standard that has been set by another that God has lived up to to make himself holy. God himself is the standard for holiness. God is holy in and of himself. He is holiness personified. Um, there is no, there, there, there's nothing else he's living for. So by his very nature, God is holy. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is good. Yes, he is kind. But the only attribute that the, that the angels sing to the Lord in front of his throne day and night without ceasing is holy, holy, holy. As an element of Christian discipleship, holiness then is our standard. It means to be set apart to God. Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 9, about holiness. He says, you, speaking of Christians, you are a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what it means to be holy. We're set apart and we're sanctified by God as his people. We're, we are not removed from the world, but we are different from those with whom we live. We're his. We're called to live differently than those around us because it brings God glory and reflects his nature. As we pursue holiness, uh, as, as we're different and set apart from those around us, those who don't know God as their Father, we do what Jesus said. We let our light shine before men and they see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. 
But this is impossible without Jesus. Remember, just want to keep this in front of us. Peter is writing to those who are Christians. They are believers. They have been saved. Peter is not issuing an evangelistic call to holiness. He is not calling someone who is dead in heart and dead in spirit to a Christian ethic that they can't live to. That is, the, that is what I would consider probably the epitome of cruelty. Someone who doesn't know Jesus, someone who, doesn't, who hasn't had their heart made new, someone who knows nothing of the Lord but expecting them to live this way. Calling a non-believer to holiness is like calling water to be dry. It can't happen. First, we have to meet Jesus. We must be given a new heart. That's the first step. Repent of your sin and be, be reconciled to God. Turn from your wickedness and your ignorance and being a slave to your own passion. Turn to God. Trust Jesus. Then He will make you holy. Over a long period of time, He will make you holy. As we stumble forward in His grace, by His power, we become more and more like Jesus. Our affections change and He becomes more desirable to us. As Jonathan Edwards wrote about in his book, um, The Religious Affections, he, the, the crux of that book is our sin becomes more bitter, Jesus becomes more sweet, our affections begin to change as we take step after step after step towards Him, and then we become more holy over time by God's power through His grace. That is the call Peter is issuing here, a striving to be more like Christ, a longing to be purified and less like the world He saved us out of. Now, there's a really cool parallel here that I had not seen before, before I kind of dug into this this week. Look at verse 16. The quote Peter uses, you shall be holy for I am holy, comes from Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. During the time Moses was leading the people of God through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So God was about to lead his people into the land of Canaan, a land where darkness and wickedness ruled. The people of Canaan that Israel would be interacting with and engaging with, um, you can, you can see this in Scripture, but you can also read it in secular history as well. They had some of the most debased and degenerate cultures known in the history of, human, of humankind, even to this day. So God gave His people the law, and He called them to holiness, and He called them to a different standard and a different ethic and a different way of life so that they would be distinguishable as His people. In a way, you could say that God giving His people the law and calling them to holiness was like taking a sponge and coating it in a protective layer of oil before you dragged it through the sewer. Likewise, Peter is writing to Christians who've been dispersed through the Roman Empire in a culture that didn't know God. It was debased and degenerate and opposed to God's holiness. God's people were once again surrounded by a culture that followed their own passions in their ignorance of the Lord. And once again, God's people are being told to be holy and separate so that they're set apart and distinct and recognizable as God's people. God says to those who are His, you are mine. Abstain from the pollutions of the Gentiles who have a different father. And that's the purpose of holiness in the life of a believer. To separate ourselves from that which is evil. Now, those who Moses led through the desert, those to whom Peter wrote that had been dispersed and persecuted, and those of us today who are the people of God, who are believers, who have been called to this salvation in Jesus Christ, who find ourselves in times of hardship, who struggle 
who get depressed, who are bombarded from every angle with everything that is against the things of God, who live in a culture that hates God. When times are hard, we are also called to obedience and holiness. To be holy as the one who called us is holy. That is the call of one who has God for a father. There's nothing in all of life There is nothing in all of life that is too small to bear the strain of becoming more holy. And as the Israelites in the desert were were called to serve God and separate themselves from immorality and uncleanliness, even in the middle of suffering and hardship, believers today must also heed the sovereign call of God to bear His image, obey His holy commands, and pursue holiness as a testimony to the glorious work of His saving grace. That's why holiness matters. That's why God cares how we live. Because it reflects His nature and His character. And by being holy, we don't earn, we're not earning His favor or acceptance. We're not, we're not meriting that in ourself. We're, we're, we're simply bringing Him glory because of what He has already done for us. So then, as things fall apart in culture and in society, and as it might look hopeless and we might struggle, we still obey our Father, we still seek His holiness, we still seek to serve and live for Him because what He offers us at the coming of Christ is better. Our hope is firmly fixed on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our situation is bearable. We are going to be okay. And then... Third, we finally, we remember that our holiness is not our moralism or goodness. I think this will be on the screen, but let me read the account of when the prophet Isaiah encountered God's holiness from chapter 6 of Isaiah. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which means burning ones. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. This is a holiness not from us. This is different than anything we could manufacture or create or put together on our best day. Isaiah is undone at the sight and the experience of it. He's not inspired by it. He's not encouraged by it. He's not up to the task to try to live up to it. He's destroyed by it because he realizes that he is nothing in the face of God's holiness. 
Another one of my favorite preachers, Sam Alberry, says this about this passage. He says, when Isaiah sees a vision of God, he doesn't cry, wow, but woe. God doesn't overwhelm us with how brilliantly like us he is, but how disastrously unlike him we are. Nevertheless, this is the standard to what God calls his people to. Be holy as I am holy. God calls his people to be holy because he has called us from death to life. Just as the angel, just as the seraphim flew and touched Isaiah's mouth and atoned for his sin, Jesus, if you are a Christian, Jesus has atoned for your sin. The wrath of God for you is gone. It is no more. Um, we are now, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I, I, I recite this to both of my kids every single night because I think it's one of the most amazing verses in the entirety of the Bible for our sake, he, he being the Father, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We can be holy because God is holy. We will never achieve it on this earth. We will never reach it. But because of what God has done for us, because he himself has atoned for our sin and taken away our sin and made us right with himself, we, by his power, by his grace, we can stumble forward into deeper reality and deeper holiness with God himself. That's why Jesus saved you. John Calvin said this. He said that the holiness that God calls us to is not equality with God, but rather for us to advance as far as our condition will bear. That means that we just keep moving closer to Jesus until we finally get there when we're with him. We will never achieve perfection. We will sin and we will fall daily, but by his grace, we step forward moment by moment into this deeper holiness and deeper reality with our Savior. That's what we're called to. Oswald Chambers said that the destined destined end of man is not happiness nor health, but holiness. He's right. Jesus has achieved that holiness for us. Jesus himself is our holiness. Our best efforts, our striving, even our pressing forward in the power of the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus doesn't achieve that holiness for us, or nor does it achieve our acceptance with God. Only Jesus has done that, and only Jesus can. That's why Peter says that we place our trust, we place our faith in the living hope of Jesus Christ, and then we obtain the outcome of that faith, the salvation of our souls. So yes, God cares how we live in times of trouble. When things are trending downward, when things look bad, we remember our identity as his obedient children and not as ignorant slaves given over to our own passions. We remember that our personal holiness reflects his nature and brings him glory. And we remember that our holiness is not our moralism or goodness, striving to be the best version of ourselves, hoping that God will count that as good enough. When the wheels come off, If we're believers, we obey and we strive for holiness, knowing that what is coming at the the revealing of the glory of Christ surpasses anything we can gain or lose on this earth. So go ahead and cancel me. My Father is King of the universe. We remember that who we're living for is is greater than the circumstances we're living in. And if you're not a believer, repent. And believe in the Holy One, the righteous King, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and turn to the One 
who loves and forgives and makes all things new. Some of us might need to repent of grievous sins that are blatantly obvious. Some of us, on the other hand, might need to repent of our own religion that we think has made it, that we have done well enough so that God will count us holy and righteous. Only Jesus makes us holy. It's only through the merit of Christ that we can have hope. It's only through the merit of Christ that we can obey and be holy. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's my sermon. Let's pray, and I'll invite the band up. Lord, um, what you have done for us in Christ, um, Lord, is just amazing. Um, for him to come and save us out of this world and give us a living hope in himself that makes it possible and bearable for us, Lord, not only to... Um, endure the hardships that this world will inevitably bring us, but also, Lord, um, so that we can pursue your holiness. Lord, you call us to be holy as you are holy. You are other than everything else, and you call us into that to participate with you in that. Lord, let us not lose our awe and our wonder of that. Give us strength. Um, give us the courage to keep going, knowing that our hope is firmly fixed in Jesus Christ and nothing this world will throw at us can unsettle that we can endure we can obey we can be holy because Jesus has obeyed for us he is our holiness and what is coming what you are bringing to us in him through him far surpasses anything else this world can offer or take from us let that be our reality this week in Jesus name